Did yo 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 ma 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 ta da da yo yo do Oh yo do yo 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 do yo do yo do 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 ma 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 Welcome back. I'm so pleased we are together once again as we continue our study of Megillat Esther. Today we are going to delve into one of the most important verses in the entire Megillah. In fact, I'll go out on a limb and say that this is probably the single most important verse, or at least the single most famous verse in the entire Megillah. This verse is recited by Torah observant Jews at least once a week. Once a week. At the close of Shabbat, it's incorporated to become a part of our Havdalah service. The service, the special prayer we recite at the close of Shabbat. So as to make a distinction. Here's where we draw the line between the seventh day, the holiest day of the, of the week, Shabbat, and the six days of work. It is with this verse that we herald the distinction between Am Yisrael and the rest of humanity. So if there's one verse of the Megillah that is constantly talked about, it probably has some very important messaging for us. Today we are going to first look at this verse from a pshat, or a literal contextual perspective, to understand how it fits into the story of the Megillah. We're going to try and highlight or emphasize why it is that in the time the Megillah is read publicly, this is one of only four verses that's read out loud, and we talked about that in our previous episode at length, and I refer you back to it. And we'll look into the deeper homilytic and mystical messaging that this verse contains. With no further ado, we are nearing the end of the eighth chapter of Megillah Tester, and today we are going to be studying verse 16. Verse 16 comes on the heels of verse 15. In verse 15 we read, that there was much jubilation or loudly shouted out and expressed joy in the city of Shushan. Shushan In our previous episode, we looked at the verse and the city of Shushan, Shushan and understood that it was not only a statement about the Jewish population. In fact, as Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech in his commentary on the Megillah clearly states, and I quote, Velo hayehudim bilvad samchu. It was not only the joy of the Jewish citizenry. Elo v'ha'ir shushan. The entire city was in the aisles dancing. Malbum talks about this at length. In our previous episode, we highlighted it. In continuation of what we learned earlier, the city of Shushan experienced profound joy, happiness, 
Layehudim, now specifically to the Jewish population, for them, Haita, for them there was Ora, light, the Simcha, and happiness, the Sason, and joy, the Yikar, and glory. Well, obviously the Jews were happier than everybody else. The rest of the citizenry was happy to be rid of Haman. Haman was about Haman. He wasn't about anybody else. He wasn't looking out for the little guy, if you will. He wasn't worried about the middle class, the working class. He cared about his cronies, his own, if you will, clerisy of nobility, his own little circle. That's what we took care of. Everybody else just had to bow, prostrate, pay homage, shut up and pay up, as they say. Mordechai, Mordechai is a righteous tzaddik. It's not about Mordechai at all. It's about what can I do for others, which is really how politicians or people in government are supposed to be. The job is not to lecture us on what the meaning of morality is. For this, we don't have to elect officials. For this, we have people who can teach us Torah. The elected official is a public servant, and he should be answering to one master, and the master, namely, is the good of the people. He has to work on behalf of the people. Mordechai was such a righteous politician or political appointee, if you will. So everybody was happy with him. The Jewish population, oh, they were obviously more happy. Not only did they get rid of a bad politician, not only were they rid of corruption and persecution in the, in the sense of the rich oppressing or taking advantage and exploiting the poor, but for the Jewish people, they were looking at a bloody pogrom. They were looking at a, annihilation. So now that they had moved from a position of not having the right of self-defense and essentially being sitting ducks or targets, there was a lot of joy for the Jewish people. Okay. So simcha is a word for joy. He said, the city of Shushan was tzahola v'samecha. Now we say layahudim, there was ora. The first thing we emphasize is not joy or happiness. The first thing we emphasize is the notion of light. And that, of course, begs a question. On a pshat level, what is meant with this euphemistic term? So let's illuminate the euphemism, the terminology of aura. I'll begin by sharing with you the commentary that's found in the Sefer Yad HaMelech. He suggests that as we learnt in our previous episode on the Megillah, that the notion of light represents coming out of a situation of darkness, he says for the Jewish people there was the greatest of light per se. That is, a transformation of going from a very dark place to a brilliant place. We actually use this terminology in our Pesach Seder liturgy on Passover evening when we acknowledge the initial redemption or birth of the Jewish nation, we say Hashem has taken us from darkness into light. So the Adam Melech says, since that's Torah terminology, since that's the euphemism employed for redemption, for salvation, one of light, and darkness represents the opposite, here we went, we were batzora, we were under tremendous pressure. Can't even imagine the anxiety of people who are just waiting for the shoe to drop, sitting ducks. You're all going to be massacred on this day if you make it there. Many people had actually gone into hiding. 
think Anne Frank. Think the secret basements and the gutters in the Warsaw Ghetto. People went into hiding. They were afraid to show their face. Be people were beaten in the streets. I bet you Jewish stores had windows smashed. There was really serious anxiety throughout the Jewish community. People did not know what tomorrow was going to bring. They didn't feel safe. And so many people were literally hiding in dark basements without windows or keeping the shutters closed. And now they had gone out from a position of being locked up in dark cellars and keeping the shutters closed to the sun is shining. So that's the La Yehudim Ora, quite literally. They literally had light. They didn't have any sunlight before. Similarly, Sefer Yad Melech says, remember that the Jewish people, after they heard about this decree, had gone into a three-day fast. And the notion of abstention from food for an extended period of time also darkens one's reality. So they went out of what's called hechashichu Their eyesight had become dimmed from hunger. And now there was literally, so to speak, a lit up celebration. The lights were on. It was a party. Parties are not doom, gloomy places. Parties are when we throw the doom and gloom away and turn the lights on and celebrate. The Monosalevi adds very interestingly that in truth, the four expressions here correspond to four things we heard about previously. And this is in keeping with the, the Purim theme of Vinahapoch. Everything was transformed. For example, the Manus HaLevi says, previously, the Jewish people had experienced what's called shame and embarrassment. You know, we had a situation where if you were a Jew, you were a target. Nobody was walking around with proverbial Jewish pride. But now they were. Now they were proud to be Jewish. Yeah, the queen, she's Jewish. That newly appointed viceroy, he's our Rebbe, he's Jewish. So this is the idea of Yukur. That's the idea of the honor that they had merited now. There wasn't much happiness. The people had been fasting. We say, Sak Voefer. There was burlap. Coarse, kind of mournful clothing. People put ashes as a symbol of mourning. And keneged habechi, vahespid, corresponding to the sadness, to the melancholy they felt, now they felt sasim v'simcha. And so we can see this quite literally, the Manus Alevi says, from a dark cellar into a little party, from sadness and mourning or melancholy into joy and happiness, and from being ashamed of one's Jewishness, now there was a profound sense of pride. People felt good about who they were. And of course they should. That's La Yehudim, in a very literal, straightforward, what we would call pshat level. In the Sefer Eshkol HaKofer, he goes further and he says that when one contemplates you'll see that exile, dispersion, being in a situation that threatens the survival of the Jewish people as a nation or as individual members of Am Yisrael, the Torah euphemism or metaphor 
invariably devolves into darkness and night. Eshkola Sefer says, if you take a look at the description, scriptural description, or anywhere in Torah literature, you will hear the notion of Tzarot Yisrael, metaphorized as Lila, and Geulat Yisrael, redemption, metaphorized as day. You know, a modern example of this is Elie Wiesel's first book, his Holocaust memoir. It's called Night. Night is symbolic of Galut. We call it the long night, or the dark night of exile. The Eshkol goes through the story of the Megillah, and he says, the sun began to set on the Jewish people with Haman's rise. The first thing that Haman says is, Hayam do divrei Mordechai. The Jewish people have staying power? Will they actually be able to survive the onslaught? He questions the possibility of a Jewish tomorrow. That's the beginning of Galut, my friends. When people question whether or not we'll be around tomorrow, our sun is setting. Haman's rise, like the first hour of sunset, the process of sunsetting afternoon, is followed by Haman's question of Jewish survival. Just questioning. Hayamdu. Can this be sustained? In the third hour, Haman begins to actively plot, no longer question the veracity of Jewish identity or whether or not the Jewish people will survive, but he begins to actively plot the demise of the Jewish people. The fourth hour, a fourth step or degree, is when his plot, his thoughts, his plans, his machinations begin to assume bone, sinew, and flesh to become actualized. Now he begins to speak to Ahasuerus. The fifth hour is when Ahasuerus, thoroughly convinced, hands the ring to Haman, as if to say, do as you please. The next move is yours. And then the sun sets entirely. Sunset is when the royal couriers ride off to deliver their message throughout the province. With this, the sun has set and night has fallen. The Eshkol says, then, all of a sudden, things began to change. Suddenly, after we got past the darkest part of night, a glimmer begins to appear on the horizon. It begins first with insomnia, royal insomnia. The king can't sleep. The second hour or degree is when he suddenly discovers, there's this guy Mordechai. He's never been rewarded. He finds in the annals and the records that Mordechai saved his life, but nothing was ever done to recompense. And now the darkness begins to get a little less dense. In the third hour, 
we hear him saying to Haman, Maher, quickly, take that horse as you mentioned, all of that royal attire, and do that for Mordechai. Now there's a glimmer. There seems to be hope for the Jewish people. The fourth hour represents the next step or grade where Haman returns home from leading Mordechai and a horse throughout the streets of Shushan, proclaiming, this is the man that the king wants to honor, and then being doused in refuse, or worse, by his own daughter. Now he returns home, thoroughly demoralized. We've been through all of this together. And, and his wise, very wicked wife, Zeresh says, oh, if this Mordechai, who you hate so much, if he is from the seed of the Jews, nofoil tipoil lefanov, once you start the fall, the dominoes don't pick themselves back up. In the fifth hour, says the Eshko, the king is now at the royal ball, a private party, with Esther. Esther has finally identified the face of evil, and the king responds in rage, Mihuzeh, who wants to kill my queen? The end of that tantrum is Haman hanging from the gallows. The sixth hour, where the sun is now shining brightly and has risen, that's when the royal couriers once again set out. And now day has dawned and the light begins to shine. It climaxes with Mordechai emerging. It was yesterday. That was what we learned about in our previous episode of our study of the Megillah. So the Eshkol kind of goes through the whole story of the Megillah, illustrating it as the setting sun and the falling of night, corresponding to the glimmer of light, the breaking of day, and sunrise. And that, says the Eshkol, is the meaning on a pshat level. Clearly, this is poetic prose. It doesn't have to only mean in the most literal level of pshat that they turn the lights on in their ballroom or in their dining room. It doesn't have to only mean they threw open the shutters or now could walk freely outdoors and bask in the sunlight. It can also be understood on a pshat level, metaphorically, euphemistically. And so, layahudim for the Jewish people, where there had been night, now there was aura, now there was light. And that light continues with joy and happiness and a sense of pride and honor. The Jewish people had their dignity restored. The Ma'am Lois kind of casts this teaching of the Eshkol HaKofer with a story that's found in the Talmud, in the Jerusalem Talmud, in Mesechet Brachot, in the 8th chapter. There's a story there related that Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Ab, and Rabba and Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta were traveling, I suppose at night, and they saw the morning star rise, proverbially speaking. It means that uh, the sky began to lighten, so all the other stars faded and only Venus was visible. That's called the rise of the morning star. It's called Ayala Tashachar. And Rebchia says to Rabbi Shimon, what we just saw, that's what the process of redemption looks like. Kima, kima. Slowly. 
a slow process. As it says, ki eshev b'choshech, when I sit in darkness, Hashem orli. That's the prophet Micha speaking. I sit in darkness, but God is my light. And so, says the Mamlois, in the beginning, Mordechai was sitting, Bishar HaMelech. He sat in the royal gates, but he was sitting in the darkness. The Jewish people were sinking into a very difficult, very, very challenging, in fact, awful future, one of genocide and annihilation. But then, Mordechai merits to be dressed up and led through the streets, given honor, and finally, he emerges victorious as the second most powerful man in the then civilized world. And that is the meaning of La Yehudim, Haisa Ora, Vesimcha Vesasim Vikar. So I've shared with you multiple explanations, if you will, that kind of revolve around the arena of Pshat. It's interesting that almost everything we've talked about in one way, shape, or form refers to the sun. And yet, the Jewish people seem to be metaphorized in lunar fashion. Yisrael monin lalavana, our sages say, we the Jewish people tell time or create the monthly increments by verses of the lunar orbit, the reappearance of the moon, vidomin lalavana, our story of the rises and the falls of our nation's fortunes very much mirror a moon-like reality. And yet here we've only talked about the sun. So I guess kind of to round out or complete the euphemism of Pshat, I want to share with you the Medrash Rabbah on Parshat Bo. In chapter 15, subsection 7, the, the Medrash analyzes a verse that says, Yafa Kalavana the Jewish people were beautiful as the moon in the kingdom of Media. The Medr says, Atamotza Balila, you can see in deep nocturnal darkness, Ein Lavana Nirit if the moon isn't visible, then the world is in total darkness. A person can't really navigate his way. Forget in the wild, a blue yonder, so to speak, outside of civilized area. But even in the municipal area, when there's no moonlight, and I'm talking about before the advent of electricity, when the kerosene lamps have burnt out, if there's no moon at all, you can't navigate your way. You can't make your way through the darkness. However, once the moon reappears, people are happier when there's a proverbial moon in the sky. Mahalchem Baderach. They use the moon to navigate their way. By the light of the moon, they shall not blunder. And it's interesting to note that even those who used to ride the, the seas, the high seas, when you sail the sea, as long as the moon was visible, you could still easily navigate your way. When the moon wasn't there at all, or when you had a cloudy, cloudy night a starless, moonless, cloudy night, you really were in a state of confusion. And so it is also in the days of Ahasuerus. All of this, says the Medrash, is a metaphor 
for the time Yisrael, that there was a decree against the nation of Israel, that we, the Jewish people, should be destroyed, annihilated. Esther. Esther came. She brought light to the Jewish people. And that is the meaning, metaphorically, of La Yehudim Haita For the Jewish people, there was light. The measure says, for the Jewish people, there was Esther. Moonlight. That's why it says, Yafa Kalavana Bamalchus Madai. The Medrash says, And if you must know, Nidmei's Esther Lavana, Esther herself, is actually metaphorized in moon fashion. Kishem Shahalavana Nilda Lalamajem, just as the moon reappears or is, if you will, born after a 30 day cycle. Kach Esther Amra, Esther said, I'm done. I haven't been called to come before the king for 30 days. And of course, Esther didn't know what the end would be, but she was prepared to take the risk. And we learned that story together. Esther was ultimately saved by the hand of Hashem. Esther is reborn, if you will, or comes into her own at that moment. All right. So the aura is sunlight, the aura is moonlight. On a level of pshat, we can understand and we can appreciate in the modern pirush that's put out by Moshe that I've cooked, and I don't know what the source for this is. There's no sources brought here. He says, aura could be aura mamish, it is the nature of people who party to fire up the lamps. And people even light up the outdoors. You know, maybe even fireworks, I don't know. They, they light or kindle torches and ticky lamps. and It's just a way of celebrating. Interestingly, this is found actually in the commentaries that speak about the notion of the celebration of Hanukkah, <laughs> not Purim. The notion of that they kindled menorot, many menorot, in your holy courtyards. As the Rebbe once explained, it refers not to the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash, that's one menorah, and nobody would have seen that. But rather, it refers to celebratory lamps, celebratory fires, celebratory lanterns that were lit. And in many, many cultures and civilizations, people celebrate with candles and lanterns and, and torches. So, it's not a difficult metaphor to understand. And of course, as all of Shushan was happy, the people of Israel, the Jewish people living in Shushan, were much, much happier. The joy they experienced was far greater. And that's the literal meaning of Alright, so that's very nice. And uh, that gives us a shot appreciation of what we're talking about over here. Yet, this is one of those verses that, uh, to quote Rashi, Oimer Darsheni. It's one of those verses that says, come on, don't just take me at face value. Delve into me. Don't you see I have a message? Like, don't you have any questions? Aren't you going to ask me? 
No? Well, ask me. This is a Pasuk that begs for you to ask and to look for more. So let's look for more. Let's begin our little journey as we begin to delve into this verse now, not on a pshat level, but on a deeper level, which perhaps will help us understand why this is the most famous verse of the Megillah and why it makes it into our weekly Saturday night Matzoi Shabbat Havdalah liturgy. The Gemara in Meseches Megillah, on page Tes Zion Amid Beis, on page 16, side B, smack in the middle of the page, the Gemara returns to analyzing verses of the Megillah. And the Gemara quotes our very verse and then states, Omar Rav Yehuda. Rav Yehuda taught, Ora, this notion of light, Zo Torah. That refers to Torah. So yeah, of course, on some literal level, there was actual light or sunlight or metaphoric moonlight or euphemistic illumination. But on a deeper level, Ora, light, refers not to photons, but to wisdom. It refers to the light of Torah. Ora zu Torah. The chen Omer, and indeed, the scripture actually says this. And here he refers to Ecclesiastes, Proverbs 6, Mishle, Vav, the 23rd verse, a very famous verse that states, Kiner mitzvah, for mitzvah is metaphorized as a lamp, the Torah or, and the Torah to light or photons. So Torah is like a photonic reality. And those, that illumination, which is metaphorized by the wisdom of Torah, is what's meant, la Yehudim ha'isa ora. Now, obviously, this is, uh, begs for a little elucidation. Now, that Haman's decree is kind of been cast aside or overcome, that Haman is hanging, that the enemies of the Jewish people, instead of exulting over their future victory, are now quaking in their boots from their impending doom. Now the Jewish people are learning Torah, what, they weren't learning Torah before? Rashi is bothered by this. And Rashi says, no, they actually weren't learning Torah. They weren't. He says, well, Shegazar Aleim Haman, Haman decreed by royal edict, that they shouldn't study Torah. So Torah study was actually outlawed. If you study Torah, you did so at the peril of your very life. Now that the edicts had been lifted, or at least mollified, They've been cast aside. They've been neutered. They no longer have. They've been blunted. They no longer have any power. Now that Haman is gone, ah, the Torah returned to us. Now Torah could be taught freely. Now people could gather and study Torah without any fear, trepidation, or anxiety. The Marsha adds something very interesting here. He says, we know that Torah is referred to because it says ora, not or. Now Hebrew, like many other languages, including French for example, has a masculine tense and a feminine tense. You say, say the same word in one of two tenses. 
On a literal level, when you're speaking to a woman or a man, you switch tenses. But then there are certain verbs, certain nouns, which are masculine or feminine in nature, and so you frame your sentence in masculine terminology or in feminine terminology. The question then becomes, or is masculine, ora is feminine, why do we emphasize ora instead of or? Seemingly, if you wanted to talk about light, or is the more natural expression to use. The Marsha says, that's because the Torah is most often seen in a feminine sense rather than a masculine sense. And because of this, we have this idea that Ora is not referring to photons, but it's actually referring to a different kind of light or illumination, namely cerebral light and illumination, the wisdom, the light of Torah. It's interesting that our sages also expound on the notion Hakol Kol Yaakov Hayedayim of the voice is the voice of Jacob, the hands, meaning violence, that belongs to Esau. Esau is the progenitor of Amalek, the ancestor of Haman. And it says when the voice of Jacob goes silent, as in when Torah study ceases, then the violence or hands of Esau become pronounced. And so Haman understood that the Jewish people's power was vested in their spirituality. And by denuding them of their source of strength and encouragement and inspiration and connection to God, all of which is achieved through the study of Torah, that this would presage the circumstances as to allow him, pave the way for his road to hell, he would be able to bring about the violence that he sought to inflict upon the Jewish people. So this is the first statement, Ora, Zu Torah. We couldn't study Torah before. From this point and onward, we're able to study Torah. It's interesting, the Gilead Nashas also talks about this idea that the Gemara Mesechet Shabbat talks about, that the Jewish people had accepted the Torah, Har Sinai, but they did so under duress, as per the metaphor of the mountain over their heads, accept the Torah or not, and we got swept off our feet, as the Alter Rebbe explains it euphemistically in Torah or and Hashem kind of overwhelmed us with his profound revelation, which was so impressive to us that we just said yes, and we were swept off our feet. But we didn't make that decision in a balanced, cogent, calm and collected way. But in a time of Purim, we had ample, ample time to think. We could make a decision. You could stay with this, or you could abandon it. Alter Rebbe writes in Torah or that had the Jewish people abandoned their Jewish identity, Haman would not have persecuted them. In fact, anybody who would have defected from the ranks of the Jewish people would have been left alone. So Kimu Vikiblu, the words of we ratified and we accepted, the Gemara says on these very words of the Megillah that in the time of Purim, we re-accepted the Torah all over again. And so the Gilead Nashas wants to add that that's the notion of Torah. Zuora, it represents acceptance. It represents a willful obedience to Torah. Towards the end of this drash, of this homily, you'll see how really all of the different ideas ultimately come back to the word Torah. But let's put that in the back burner for just a moment. Moving right along, 
The Gemara now goes on and continues to expound. Okay, so if Ora is Torah, then what is Simcha? What is Simcha referring to? So the Gemara says, Simcha? Ha! I'm glad you asked. Ze Yom Tov. This refers to Yom Tov. And Rashi says, Yom Tov? What do you mean? They weren't keeping the Yom Tov? Rashi says, yeah. Actually, Kimu Aleim Yomim Tovim. They accepted upon themselves Yomim Tovim, and as is augmented by the other commentaries, this refers to the notion of accepting upon themselves to be more observant of Shabbat and the festivals. And why is Yom Tov metaphorized as Simcha? The Gemara says simple. Because we find that when the Torah talks about Yom Tov, the description of what you do on a Yom Tov in the Torah is Vesamachta Bechagecha. You rejoice in your festivals. So Simcha is connected to Yom Tov. And the first of the Yomim Tovim, of course, is Shabbat. In Parshat HaMoadim, which we read on the three festivals, we begin, Elohim Moyadoi, these are my festivals. And the first thing we talk about is Shabbat. Shabbat is the first festivals. The Medrash says, Yemei Simchatchem, the days of your rejoicing, of your happiness. Elu HaShabbatot. This is Shabbat. So Shabbat, Yom Tov, becomes a euphemistic kind of expression that labels all days of Jewish solemn celebration. All holidays, including Shabbat. So that's the notion of Simcha. Now we have the ability to observe, to revel in, to celebrate our Shabbatot and our Yomim Tovim. Now we did so and accepted upon ourselves to do it properly. Sason, happiness. How is that different from joy? So the Gemara says that Sason, Zumila, this refers to the mitzvah that is loosely translated as circumcision. The bond, the covenant of Abraham that we have between us and Hashem, the mark of our Jewishness that is on our very material bodies, on our, on our person itself. And we find that the term sason is applied to the mitzvah of Mila, who Omer, he says prophetically in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, verse 182, I rejoice over your sayings. So what does that mean? The Gemara tells a story that David HaMelech was alone in the bathhouse because a Melech, a king, has to maintain a certain dignity. He's got to be presidential at all times. That comes with the job, so to speak. And that means he can't have anybody else with him when he bathes. Now, I know in today's day and age, most of us shower alone, but once upon a time, it wasn't quite like that. And in fact, wealthy people had attendants who were helping them. And here, David Amalek is alone. And he felt alone. He felt bereft. He says, I'm alone. I don't, there's no people here. I'm alone. I don't have the ability to study Torah. I don't have my tefillin. I don't have a safer Torah. A king always walks with the Torah scroll held in his bosom, in his hands. David Amalek says, I'm, I'm emptied of mitzvahs. He wasn't even wearing a kippah. He was denuded of mitzvahs. And then he remembered that even in his birthday suit, he was still wearing a mitzvah. That's the mitzvah of Brit Milah. And so the Gemara tells us that therefore David HaMelech rejoiced over the mitzvah of Milah. And so Sason is connected to rejoicing. 
Now it's really interesting to note that the emphasis here is sas anochi al imra techa. So Rashi says, imra techa, your sayings, referring to God of course, imra techa zumila. This is the mitzvah of circumcision. You ask why? Simple. Shenitna b'maimer, because it was said. Hashem spoke of this to Moshe. He didn't tell him what to do. He didn't instruct or command him. There wasn't any tough talk. There was no dibur. As it is written in the scripture, Vayomer Hashem al-Avram. God said to Avram, Va'ata, and you, et briti tishmor. I want you to keep my covenant. Rashi goes on to say, We see that David rejoiced over this mitzvah, as it is written in the sixth psalm, to the choir master, and although a shminit is a unique kind of musical instrument, but here it's understood in a euphemistic or metaphoric sense, referring to the eighth, and the number eight refers to Brit Milah. This is the story I mentioned to you earlier when David was in the bathhouse and he saw himself below Torah, without Torah, because you can't study Torah when you're in that state of undress and in that kind of place. Below mitzvot, you don't have any mitzvot. So once he saw the Brit Milah, Samach, this brought him joy. Now, that is to say, most mitzvot are connected to the word of dibur. They're instructions, they're commandments. They're not suggestions. God doesn't come and say, you know, I wouldn't mind a cup of coffee. Well, if you say so, God says, I command you to do A, B, and C. Most mitzvot are preceded with the very clear, instructive verse, Vayidaber Hashem el Moshe, Lamer. God said to Moshe, here's what you're going to tell him. The Aseret HaDibrot, God speaking to, him, uh, to us himself, also begins with the word Vayidaber. Not Vayomer. If you think about it, a mitzvah necessarily is a commandment or an instruction. Mitzvah are not simply electives or, or sweet suggestions. It's not God conversing with us. You know, if you'd like to do this, it would be nice. That's not what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is actually obligatory. Yeah, it's a free country, and you can do as you please, but you're going to have to answer for what you did or didn't do someday. It's not really up to us. We are actually responsible. When you're responsible for something, it's like, I told him what to do. I didn't say you should consider A, B, or C. I told him. You didn't tell me what you wanted. Well, I said, oh, you said. Said is not tell. If you wanted me to do something, you had to tell me. As the Sif says, especially when it's a mitzvah that has pain attached to it, that's a bloody mitzvah, a painful mitzvah. It's an uncomfortable mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that requires a level of mesirat nefesh, of commitment and sacrifice. Well, in that case, it should have been spoke, told to us, not spoken of. And yet, strangely, this mitzvah was only spoken of or spoken about. We use the term amira. And David HaMelech emphasizes, Sasa He says this really highlights the beauty of Am Yisrael's devotion to Hashem, that even a mitzvah that's so difficult, like Brit Milah, we do it, and we do it with joy. You see? The Jewish people are serious about their mitzvot. So this is the notion of sas anoichi. Now Rashi doesn't say it openly, but we could surmise that Haman may well have decreed 
that there should be no longer any circumcision. And we'll talk about that soon. Lastly, the Gemara says, so what's your car? What's honor or glory? And the Gemara says, Elu tfilin. this is tefillin. How do we know that that's honor or glory? Because we find with regard to tefillin that we, tefillin are spoken of in, a, in a, the prose or the frame of reverence. Hu oimer, he says in his Torah, this is in Deuteronomy, Moshe Rabbeinu says in the 47th chapter, the nations of the world will see. They will see Kishem Hashem Nikra Olecha. That the name of God is called upon you. And when they see that the name of God is called upon you, the emotion or the response that this will elicit will be one of reverence, of awe and respect. The Yorumi Mecca. They will have a sense of reverence towards you for it. Literally, fear, but it's not fear in a carnal sense. It means to be in awe of somebody or something. Vitanya, we learned in Abraisa. Rabbi Eliezer Hagodol Rabbi Eliezer Hagodol says that you must know Elu Tfilun Shabaresh. This is the Tfilun of the head. The Tfilun of the head, not the Tfilun of the hand, as is pointed out by the Tosfos in Mesechet Brachas on page 6, because the hand Tfilun aren't really seen. The hand Tfilun are kind of covered. Some people put their shirt over it or put their jacket over it or their talit over it. The hand filling aren't really seen. You see the straps, but you don't really see the box. The head filling are very visible, and that's seen by everybody. So that's the notion of a Yorumi Mecca. They'll have this sense of awe, this sense of reverence. There's a beautiful story told that the Alta Rebbe was incarcerated for trumped-up charges, that he was supporting a mutiny against the Tsar. He was actually trying to inspire rebellion. The proof? He was running a charity that sent funds to the Ottoman Empire. Well, actually, Eretz Yisrael. But it was under the dominion of the Ottoman Empire because, of course, Palestine is just a name for a piece of land that never had an independent government, currency, or civilization other than the Jewish currency, monarchy, and civilization. In all the long period of 19 centuries, it was always occupied by a power-to-be. So during the Tsarist period, their mortal enemies, the Turks, had occupied that part of the Middle East, and Palestine was a province of Turkey. And al was supporting the Hasidim, who initiated the first modern aliyah to Eretz Yisrael in the year 1776. And in that year, the Mendel of Vitebsk set off with a group of disciples of the Magad of Mizrich, as if to initiate the process of the restoration of Eretz Yisrael, the return home. And Alter Rebbe was part of that group, but he had accepted upon himself that he would support them. So it was his personal responsibility to raise funds and to send the monies to support our brothers and sisters in Eretz Yisrael. Incidentally, the charity he founded is called Kolol Chabad, and it is the oldest continuous charity supporting the needy in the land of Israel until today. At any rate, the Alter Rebbe was incarcerated with the tr- charges of high treason. You usually didn't see the light of day after being locked up in that fashion. But there was due process. 
and there was a court case. And the Alter Rebbe was interrogated multiple times. So at one point he was brought before a tribunal of high-ranking Tsarist nobility, and he was in the middle of davening when they had taken him out of his cell, and he didn't have a chance to take off his talus and film. They took him as he was, and when he walked into the tribunal, everybody was awe-stricken. So much so they, they could barely move. They were so, so much in awe of what they saw. And when they came to, they asked Alter Rebbe to explain what he had just affected. And Alter Rebbe said it's simple, and he quotes this Gemara. He says, I'm wearing my tefillin. So they said, ha, we've seen tefillin before. <laughs> Never did it result in this kind of ex expression of awe and respect. The Alter Rebbe said it says, Eil tefillin, Sheberosh. Not the tefillin on the head, the tefillin in the head. So if you wear the tefillin right, and if you actually identify with the tefillin, then indeed it sends off a wave of awe and reverence to anybody who sees it. At any rate, this is the words of the Gemara. This is how the Gemara expounds on the notion of the four words that are used to describe, the four adjectives, nouns or adjectives, that are used to describe how things were for the Jewish people in the aftermath of Haman's hanging and the proverbial rescinding, although the, the, the decree wasn't actually rescinded as we learned, but it was blunted and a new decree was put in its place. Now, it's really interesting to note that the Vilna Gaon, in his commentary on Megillah, says, if you make a Rashi Tevot, an acronym of the words Ora, Simcha, Sas, and Yukar, that's Aleph, Shin, Shin, and Yud. Let's do the math. Aleph is one, Shin is 300, Shin is 300, that's 601, and Yud is 10, 611. And the gematria, the numeric equivalent of the word 611, is Torah. Torah is 611. And as our sages tell us, not 613, because Torah tzivalanu Moshe. Moshe brought us the Torah, 611 of Hashem's commandments. The first two came from Hashem Himself. We heard those at Harsinai, Anochi, and Lo Yihi Alacha. So the number 611 represents Torah. That's the Torah Tzivalon Moshe. And so you see that the notion of Ora Simcha Sassin Yikar ultimately re reflects or, or is an embodiment of our devotion to Hashem, Torah, following Hashem's word. It's also interesting to note that although this is not what I would call Pshat, the Targum, not the Targum Sheni, the Targum renders the first, the primary Targum, renders it as such. La Yehudim Haita, for the Jews there was. The Targum says, La Yehudo'e Havas, there was for the Jews. Ora, he renders Ora as, Rishuta Me'asak Be'oraita, permission to engage in Torah study. Ora, V'simcha, and joy. He says, Ulamitar Shabaya Umayadaya, and to observe the Shabbat and the festivals. Sason, he doesn't say the word Sason, he says, Ulamigzar Urlas Benehon, to circumcise their sons. And finally, Vikar, he says, Ula Achatat Filin Al Yedehon Rasheon, to place the tefillin on their hand and on their head. Interesting that he mentions hand and head. Perhaps this is a wink to the idea articulated by our sages in the Sifri, Kol Zman Sheyiu Necha Yushtayim, if they're on your head, you gotta have them on your hand as well. At any rate, we can see here that there is a direct 
a notion, a reference to a restoration of Jewish observance, a revival of Jewish commitment. And specifically, we use these mitzvot. It's noteworthy that in the Megillas Sistarim, which is a collection of Adrashic teachings, there's this, there's this um, idea that these mitzvot specifically were directly linked to Haman's decree, as we learned in Rashi, that Haman's gzera was similar to the Assyrians who tried to get the Jewish people living in Israel just a few centuries later to forget God's Torah, that Haman wanted to make them forget their Torah. And now they had permission to study Torah again, like the Targum says. They accepted upon themselves to begin Shomer Shabbat. They violated Shabbat. They went to Ahasuerus' party on Shabbat. They made a mockery of the Jewish festivals. They said, no, no, we'll never do that again. Haman spoke again about the Jewish people. If you read the Targum that describes what Haman's complaints were, the Targum Sheni says, he said, they're always having a holiday. They're always celebrating something. They never go to work. These are not industrious people. They're always looking for a vacation. So Haman mocked the notion of Jewish festivals. He says, every week they want a vacation. Incidentally, the weekend didn't exist in those days. There were no vacations. There were no holidays then. So the Jewish people are mocked for this. And so the response to Haman's mockery and his accusatory words of laziness on behalf of the Jews because of their observance of Shabbat and the festivals was now intensified and their observance was ratified. And the Megillah Storm says, not only did we keep the festivals we had till now, we added a festival, Purim, of course. They also accepted upon themselves to be scrupulous about the mitzvah of Brit Milah. And that's because this is the mitzvah that sets the Jewish people apart from others. There are many, many tragic tales during the Holocaust of people who are identified as Jewish by virtue of the fact that they were circumcised. And so, Haman complained about the Jewish people that they refused to assimilate. They don't want to be like everybody else. They always want to remain separate and apart. And as such, he reasoned to Achashverosh, they were a danger to the multicultural society, to the melting pot that Achashverosh was trying to create as he hammered together a unified and single empire out of 127 different provinces languages, cultures, anthropologies, and persuasions. So you can't have the Jewish people. They fly in the face of that. So here we emphasized the notion of the simon hamuvak, of the irrevocable sign of being Jewish, the Brit Milah. They also promised, says the Megillah Sturm, never again to miss tefillin when they saw Mordechai emerge with a large golden crown, but at the center of the crown, with a simple black leather tefillin. He really impressed them with that. They were moved. And they said, no, no, it's not gold and silver. It's the tefillin that they noticed. Like we learned in the previous episode, the Vilna Gohan says, the crown, yeah, that's tefillin. That's what they saw, says the Megillah Sturm. So here we have an explanation. Really, I, I suppose if you could say an extension of the words of the Talmud, emphasizing how these mitzvot were specifically linked to the decree of Haman and how with Haman's fall comes the rise and the rejuvenation of these mitzvot. In the Sefer Imre Moshe, he says these mitzvot are also uniquely linked to joy. 
and the Jewish people have joy now. It's a very joyous time. Purim. We say Afrelech and Purim. It's Purim Sameach. Joyous. So he says the notion of studying Torah brings you joy. Pekudi Hashem. The words of Hashem are Yesharim, upright, Misamche Lev. They gladden one's heart. They bring you joy. Yom Tov, of course, Vesamachta Bechagecha. As the Gemara said, Sas Anochi. I rejoice over your sayings, refers to Brit Milah. And Tfilin also have Simcha. Where? Ah, the Ibn Meisha says, don't you know that a person who, heaven forfend, loses a loved one, who's an onin, is not permitted to study Torah or wear tefillin? And he says, we know that tefillin is called a pe'er. And they removed their diadems and instead replaced it with afer. The word pe'er, diadem, or crown, has the same Hebrew letters as afer, as ashes. Just like we don't put on tefillin, on Tishabav in the morning on the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. An interesting thing is also brought, the Ma'am Lois brings it in the name of a Rabbi Yitzchok Uziel. He says, you know, that Mordechai actually superseded the festival of Pesach. They didn't observe the festival. So now there was aura. Things were lit up and there could be simcha. They could be able to return to the proper observance of the festivals. He says, Haman tried to stamp out the Torah. Now we have another book of Torah. Megillah of Esther. It's another scroll, another part of our Jewish Bible. He says, Haman wanted to stamp out the notion of Jewish observance of festivals. Now we got a new Yom Tif. It's called Purim. And Rabbeinu Yitzchak says something very, very interesting about Brit Milah. Haman was a descendant of Amalek. He was the embodiment of Amalek. He is the Agagite. When the Amalekites first attacked the Jewish people, if you read the words carefully, the scripture says, Vayizanev b'cho kol shalom acharecha, a zanav is a tale. Rashi tells us that the Pshuto Shal Mikra is that they attacked the weak, they attacked the weary, and they mutilated them. They literally cut off their genitals. And they threw their genitals after they killed these people. They threw the, geni the, the genitals of the Jews and say to God, here's what you wanted, God, eh? A Brit Milah? Here's your Brit Milah. There was a, a special, grotesque hatred and brutality connected to that part of the body. I have to tell you something sickening. There's a member of our community who was served in the Israeli Armed Forces, in the Israeli Defense Forces in Sahal during the Yom Kippur War. And he ended up with the unfortunate task of repatriating bodies of Israeli soldiers who were killed. Specifically, bodies that were coming back from Syria. And he said to me, you would not, I never told this to anybody, he said, you would never believe what the Syrians, those animals did. He said that they sent home the bodies of Jewish servicemen with their genitals cut out, stuffed into their mouths. Mamash Amalek. He said it was just grotesque, beyond sickening. He started to cry, he said to me. You <laughs> killed a guy. You have to mutilate him also. Amalek. This is the paradigm of the greatest evil and hatred 
of the holiness of Am Yisrael and the special mitzvah that Hashem gave us. And so Rabbeinu Yitzchok Uziel says, there's the mila, brit mila, ratification of brit mila as a renunciation of the attack and the hatred of Amalek. And finally, he says, if you take a look, you'll see that in the next verse, which we'll study, Bezrat Hashem, it says, Rabbin Mityadim, many people began to embrace Judaism. Rashi says they were converting. And so there was an uptick in circumcision because in order for a man to become Jewish, Brit Milah is a critical element of being welcomed into the covenant of Abraham. So there you got it. There's a, a whole lot of profundity and depth on a level of pshat, on a level of drush, of homily, and on a literal level with regard to this very important verse, Ora v'simcha v'sasim v'yikar. I'm going to conclude by telling you that this is one of those verses where you really can see the illumination of Teres Achsidus. Because whilst there isn't an enormous profusion of material, I've shared just about everything that's out there on Ora v'simcha v'sasim v'yikar, I haven't even begun to touch the Hasidic interpretation. I'm going to share with you but one primary explanation. And I'm going to tell you that I needed another class or two to fully develop and unfurl the way this verse is explained in the illuminating teachings of Teres Hasidus Chabad. I'm going to focus primarily on an edited sikhah from the Rebbe that was delivered in Purim 1959, there are multiple, multiple sichot, talks from the Rebbe, and multiple maimorim, Hasidic discourses, beginning with the words, La Yehudim, of Simcha V'sasim V'yikar, and I am not exaggerating when I tell you that literally, hours would not suffice. But with, with that, I do want to share with you the notion of how these four mitzvot become an embodiment of Jewish distinction, how they become the real sign, if you will, of who we are as Jewish people. Because it's interesting to note that this is our bond between Hashem. Natan lanu et Torah, to give us his Torah. Shabbat is oti beini ubeinechem, it's my sign. Tefillin is laot al yadecha. And of course, Brit Milah is Hashem's sign sealed onto our flesh. The Marsha says that Haman targeted these mitzvot because they specifically testify to the unique relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people. Having a relationship with God is not in the unique domain of the Jewish people. Every human being can and should endeavor to nurture and develop a meaningful relationship with God. Having said that, in the end, there is a very unique and special relationship between our Kodesh Baruch Hu and His children. Every human being is created in God's image. But the notion of a child of God is not applied to one particular Jew. Bonim atem la Hashem You, Am Yisrael, are Hashem's special children. 
And these mitzvahs serve to set us apart from all of the others. After all, Haman said that this nation is different. Yesh'am echod mefuzor umeforod. There is one nation that is scattered about, one nation that is unlike all of the others. And so now that the Megillah has narrated the fall of Haman, the collapse of his decrees, and the redemption, the salvation is upon us, it is here that the Megillah finds it appropriate to highlight the mitzvahs that embody and really broadcast the, the, the uniqueness of our relationship with Hashem. So the Rebbe asks, you know, when you think about it, these mitzvot per se aren't that unique. In fact, if you take the mitzvah out of its particularisms, but you talk about the notion of the mitzvah, broadly speaking, so Torah becomes wisdom. So festivals become holidays, special days on the calendar. So the notion of circumcision is not only a Jewish thing. There are a lot of non-Jews who circumcise their children. That's a fact, not a theory. And if we talk about tefillin, many cultures, many civilizations or nations have unique articles of clothing or some kind of sign they wear that signifies to their pedigree, to their affiliation, to their hereditary connection to a particular civilization or faith system. The Scottish have their kilts, the Sikhs have their kirpins, and so on and so forth. So tefillin aren't per se really that unique. Tefillin are a sign. Okay, so we use a different kind of sign. The fact that we use a different sign doesn't make it specifically Jewish. That's the Rebbe's question. And the Rebbe suggests that Haman recognized that it was these Jewish approaches to a universal kind of system of behavior that was unique for Amisol. He recognized something unique about intellectual pursuit in the framework of Torah. He recognized something that was radically different about communal holidays or celebrations. Something, something that was different about the circumcision of the Jew to exclusion of all others. And finally, the notion of, of icons or iconography that represents something specific when it came to tefillin was very different than the other decorations or accoutrements that were used by other nations and civilizations. And this is the Rebbe's thesis. The Rebbe says that the notion of Torah is about bringing a sense of sanctity in a sense of humility to the material reality, which senses only itself. Now, Torah, if you speak of scripture, is understood or recognized as an embodiment of God's word by many people. Many people study the Bible. The Bible, or Torah Shebikhtav, isn't right because it makes sense. You accept it or know what it says because so says God. Ora, the Alter Rebbe says in Torah Ur, does not refer to Torah 
Because it says the Torah or. The Gemara's proof that light or photons are really a euphemism for Torah, it should have said la Yehudim ha'ita or. It says aura. And the Alter Rebbe says aura, the feminine element of Torah, is not the scripture or written Torah, but rather it refers to Torah Sheba'al Peh. It refers to the oral tradition. The oral tradition isn't so it is written, so it shall be. If you've ever studied a page of Talmud, and I invite you to join me on many of those studies, you'll see that everything is questioned. And if it doesn't make sense, we don't accept it. It has to be framed and grasped by means of rhyme and reason. It has to fit into logic. That's the way it's preserved. It isn't about the words. It isn't about the specific sentences. It's the ideas. And yet, despite the fact that a Yid is studying Torah, and he's studying Torah with his mind, and he's grasping it, and it's got to make sense at the same time. There is a sense of sanctity and humility and awe with which we approach Hashem's Torah, the oral Torah as well. You know, in antiquity, there were Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees accepted the Scripture, but rejected the oral Torah. There are no Sadducees, at least not in a literal sense, that are left. But there are the figurative Sadducees, people who continue to accept and embrace biblical ideas, but reject rabbinic ideas, quote-unquote. Reject the notion of an oral tradition of Torah. Say, well, that's your idea. That's Rabbi Akiva's idea. And I have a different idea. But when you study Torah Shabbal Peh, in as much as it's got to make sense, you also study it with a deep sense of humility and acceptance. The rabbi of the Gemara does not question the ruling of the sages of the Mishnah. The Rishonim cannot contradict the writings, the rulings that come from the era prior to them. For as much as Torah Shabbal Peh is logical and reasonable, it is very much vested in the realm of obedience, humility, and a deep sense of acceptance. That's unique. Any faith system can have its dogma, but to have Dogma that is at once rational and reasonable, and yet at the same time dogmatic, this is a uniquely Jewish approach. That's only found in the Torah attitude towards study and intellectual pursuit. It is first an exercise of reverence, and only afterwards one of intellect. Yehudim Ha'isa'ora, Haman said, this is different. That's what sets our intellectual pursuit apart from those of other faith systems or civilizations. Let's talk about happiness, holidays, happenings, causes to celebrate. Every nation has them. Every civilization has them. Every faith system has them. And yet, in almost all cultures, holidays are a time to extricate yourself from the banal, ordinary, everyday, mundane, pedestrian, or prosaic, and to put yourself into a festive frame of mind. A time to indulge in food. You know, people say, it's the holiday. It's the holidays. Come on, don't count calories. It's time to lavish gifts on friends or family, and, you know, to just chill, enjoy, enjoy the holidays. But when Jewish people celebrate Yom Tov, 
first and foremost, they go to shul. And when there's eat, eating and drinking, it's done with a sense of reverence. It has a specific kind of tradition. It begins with Kiddush. It begins with sanctity. Almost all of the Yomim Tovim that are associated with food are also associated with special mitzvahs performed with the food. It's not just, let's get drunk and be happy. In other words, we're taking the most ordinary, mundane, or camp element of the existence, of human existence, and we sanctify it. Even the holiday, even the vacation, the fun of celebration, is punctuated with the sanctity and holiness of devotion to Hashem. Purim is the one Yom Tov we're actually told to indulge in wine, in strong drink, and yet the ultimate goal is not to get bombed or to have fun and be crazy, but to become more reverent towards Hashem and to develop a deeper sense of communication and connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In other words, it's not an exercise in idleness or fun. It becomes an expression of religious devotion and dedication. It's supposed to be an occasion not for indulging in the pleasures of life, but rather for self-refinement and for study of Torah that recalibrates and enables us to focus. The joy of Brit Milah, you've got to be kidding. I mean, yes, other people do engage in a practice called circumcision, most likely because they believe it to be healthy, but it's painful. And as Maimonides waxes on in detail, it also removes the fullest pleasures from a certain dimension or element of the human condition. So why would a person want to do that? He says, well, I'd rather miss out on a little bit of pleasure and live a longer life. But when a member of Am Yisrael has a Brit Milah, he or, she, he or she, the father or mother that bring the child to get the Brit Milah, is not simply saying, I know it's painful, I know it's awful, but it's to prevent bigger problems in the future. The statistics are showing that if I, if I don't do this, there can be illness and suffering down the road. It's painful and bloody. And it's a cause for celebration. The child has entered into the covenant of Avram Avinu, of Father Abraham. We are the only ones who rejoice at the notion of Brit Milah. That's uniquely Jewish. And finally, the glory, the glory of tefillin, which are not made of gold or silver, not inlaid with diamonds, rubies, or gems. Not very impressive. It's a cow's hide. But the tefillin aren't meant to be aesthetic symbols of beauty. Instead, the physical act of tefillin is supposed to represent the subjugation of our consciousness, our thoughts, and our emotions to God. It's supposed to be an expression of humility. It's supposed to be our way of demonstrating acquiescence to the higher self that we are by nature. It, it's supposed to be us trying to become who Hashem wants us to be. Well, if somebody wants to meditate or engage in contemplation, why do you need a cowhide on your head to do that? That's in the sacred recess of the mind. That's in the sanctum of the heart. And yet, when a Jew does this, it's connected to that which is most ordinary, black cowhide. 
pieces of leather, painted black and ordinary, nothing elegant or beautiful about it. That is our honor. That's uniquely Jewish. Not like kirpins that are studded with rubies. Not like hilts that are handsome. The tefillin is rather plain. It's an animal's hide. And that becomes our glorious way of connecting to our Kodesh Baruch Hu. And so, my friends, here's an example of how the Jewish people celebrated their difference or distinction. Not just in a spiritual sense. When something is markedly different, it doesn't need a sign to mark it as different. It is different. The neshama of a yid is a chelik elekam in malmama, should say, peace of God, as it were. It doesn't need markings. But the physical, material reality of Am Yisrael on the surface appears to be the same flesh, blood, and sinew, the same bone as anybody else. And yet, we see physicality, we see materiality as inherently holy when it's part of Am Yisrael. La Yehudim, for the Jewish people, at the close of this very dark period, going into this new and illuminated period, for the Jewish people, there was light, there was happiness, there was joy, and there was honor. There was a reclamation of what makes us Hashem's special people in the most concrete and actual of ways. And that's why this verse has become such an important embodiment of who we are as Hashem's special children. May we merit to see Oyer of the Sosim V'yikar in its fullest sense with the coming of Mashiach and the ushering in of universal light, universal happiness and joy, and universal honor for Am Yisrael, the Bias Mashiach Tzitkenu, with the coming of Mashiach in our time, swiftly, ubimheda, ubi amenu, amen. Thank you. Something went wrong with Facebook. What? Facebook.